This morning, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 13. Um, Revelation 13, we are introduced to two individuals that will play a prominent role in the times of the Great Tribulation. Satan, who has always wanted to be worshipped, will try to counterfeit the things of God and has always tried to counterfeit the things of God. Here we see in the great tribulation time, we see the reality that uh, Satan will try to pose himself as God the Father, but he will have an antichrist. He will have one who is in opposition to Christ, but will also try to step into the place of Christ. And then there will be a counterfeit Holy Spirit who is known as the false prophet. We'll look at the false prophet next week. This morning, we are going to look at Revelation 13, verses 1 through 10, in a message entitled, The Beast from the Sea. 1 John 2, 18 says this, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Now, here in 1 John 2.18, we see a reference to the Antichrist. There there are Antichrists that have come. They're shadows of the one who will be the Antichrist. But make no mistake about it, there are Antichrists that have been a part of the history of God's creation Since the days of of Nimrod and and, and going forward, we see all kinds of individuals that set themselves up to be like the Savior and the Messiah and the Christ who came in the person and the work of Jesus. But there is coming a day where there will be one Antichrist, where all the epitome of Satan will be incarnate in one individual, a man named Paul Henry Spock who was one of the founding members of what we now know as the EU. He was the general secretary of NATO at one point in time. He was the prime minister of Belgium in the 1930s and 1940s. He was a a devout socialist. He made the following statement in one of his speeches. The truth is that the method of international committees has failed. What we need is a person someone of the highest order or great experience, of great authority, of wide influence, of great energy. Let him come and let him come quickly, either a civilian or a military man, no matter what his nationality, who will cut all the red tape, shove out all the committees, wake up all the people, and galvanize all governments into action. We do not want another committee. We have too many already. What we want is a man of sufficient stature to hold the allegiance of all people and to lift us out of the economic morris into which we are sinking. Send us such a man, and be he God or devil, we will receive him. Now, that was a speech that was given sometime around 1956, 1957. Send us a man. We're done with international committees. Send us a man who will cut through all of the red tape, who will rule over all things that we can look to, be he God or devil, we will receive him. With that in mind, we turn to Revelation 13.1. 
where God's word says, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave its power and its throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. May God bless the reading of his word. Here what we see is we are introduced to the one who will be the Antichrist. Now, the goal of this message is not to identify the Antichrist. There's a lot of individuals who uh, during various times have have looked upon individuals in the news or on the TV screen and said, there he is, that's him, he's the Antichrist. The truth of the matter is the Antichrist may be amongst us now because the rapture may happen at any moment. However, we know that the Antichrist will be an individual that will uh, be a political leader that will uh, start off somewhat meager in his uh, power, but he will slowly rise more and more to power until we get to the three-and-a-half-year point of the Great Tribulation where he will seize all power for himself. And so... The goal is not necessarily to identify as it is to make us aware that there is such an individual that is to come upon the scene, and we have clues about who this individual will be. When we look into the Word of God, we see that this Antichrist is referred to by several names. He's referred to as the king of peace features uh, features in Daniel uh, Daniel 8.23. He is one who understands sinister schemes in Daniel 8, 23. He's referred to as the little horn in Daniel 7, 8. He's referred to as the prince who is to come, Daniel 9, 26. He's the one who makes desolate in Daniel 9, 27. He's the willful king of Daniel eleven thirty six. He's the man of sin in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. He's the son of perdition. 2 Thessalonians 2.3, and he is the lawless one, 2 Thessalonians 2.8. But here he is referred to as the beast, a beast that is rising out of the sea. And so the first thing that I want you to see if you're taking notes is that we are introduced in Revelation 13, which is the section of Revelation, which is the enemies of the eternal one. We've seen the letters of the living one, the worship of the worthy one. We've seen the signs of the sovereign one. And now we're in a section where we're introduced to the individuals that are in complete opposition to God and to his program and to his people. 
and we are introduced to the enemies of the eternal one. Thank you. Hey, actually, that one's cold. Would you mind? <clears throat> thank you. I can tell you Yeah, thank you. Texas played yesterday. It almost beat Alabama. And then my son had his first baseball game. But they didn't. But they didn't. That's true. They did, they, they did not. Thank you for reminding me. So my voice is a little bit, but God's going to get me, God's going to get me through. My, my son had his first baseball game. My son Tyler had his first baseball game uh, yesterday. And so, yeah, praise the Lord. He did, he did fantastic. Uh, scored two runs. My man, my man. Yep. Nobody was playing defense, but he scored two runs. I, want, <laughs> I just want to make sure that. All right, back to our tech. So. We're introduced in Revelation 13, 1 through 6, we're introduced to the blasphemous beast. Uh, we, we see this, this beast that we're introduced to that is rising out of the sea. We see that, that his mouth is, is filled with, with blasphemous words and that written on his head are blasphemous names. Now, for us to really understand what we are reading here in Revelation 13, we need to understand, if you're taking notes, Daniel's vision. It's important for us to understand Daniel's vision. That's why it's always uh, a, a, a little bit worrisome when individuals would say we need to divorce the New Testament from the Old Testament or that we don't need the Old Testament. Oh, you better believe we need the Old Testament because the Old Testament teaches us a lot about the New Testament. You can't fully understand the New Testament until you understand the Old Testament. And in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, we're introduced to these nations that are represented first by a statue in Daniel 2 and then by various beasts in Daniel 7. The nation of Babylon is introduced to us in Daniel 2 as a head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Daniel comes in and interprets the dream. He says, you see this statue, and that the, the, the head of the statue is, is gold, and that represents your kingdom, that represents Babylon. So when he makes the image that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the rest of Babylon is about down to, it is made of solid what? Gold, because he said, listen, there's not going to be a subsequent kingdom after me. If you say the kingdom is head and it represents my kingdom, then I'm going to make sure that what uh, the, the rest of the body is made of is gold. In other words, he's saying, listen, uh, my reign is never going to end. He is a foreshadowing, ultimately, of Satan in many ways. So Babylon was a head of gold in Daniel 2, but in Daniel 7, it was a beast of a lion with eagle wings. In fact, you see in Babylonian culture, there's a lion with wings. That was their, that was their symbol. Uh, you, you see that they, they use that in a lot of their, their symbolism. The second uh, piece of the statue that was seen in Daniel's vision uh, was Medo-Persia, and it was the upper body, the, the upper half of, of the body, the chest area, and it was made of silver. And then in Daniel 7, Medo-Persia is uh, seen in the vision as a bear that's gnawing on three ribs. The, the third nation or the third beast and the third part of the statue was Greece. 
Greece was viewed as the bronze belly and thighs of the statue and a leopard with four heads and four wings in Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7. The fourth is Rome. And it is the legs and is made of iron. Rome uh, was divided into two halves, the eastern and the western version. We see two legs that are separated representing Rome. And and then the the beast was a beast unlike which had been seen. It had uh, iron teeth and bronze claws. And then in the statue, there were feet. And the feet were made of iron and of clay. And that represents the the revived Roman kingdom of what we will see play out in Revelation 13 and where we will get a deeper glimpse of in Revelation 17 and Revelation 18. So God's word is is showing us in these visions given to to Daniel. Uh, In Daniel 2, we see man's perspective. We see these, these kingdoms, they look rich, they look strong. We see, we see all of this, this earthly kind of picture. In Daniel 7, we see God's view of these various kingdoms, that they look like beasts. They're just created beings, but that they, they, they tear and they gnaw and they cause destruction here on this earth. Oftentimes, we get caught up in the glitz and the glamour of various individuals that have obtained the earthly riches of this world. And what God's word shows us is that uh, we need to look behind that and see that there are greater riches to be had, the eternal riches to be had, and that is in Christ Jesus, who ultimately, in the vision of the statue, is the rock that is carved out of the mountain that crushes it, lands strategically. If you remember Daniel's vision, it lands on the feet. It lands on the ten toes. It lands on that which is iron and clay mixed together, which is the revived Roman Empire that is to come in the days of the Great Tribulation. It is there where Christ returns and destroys. Ultimately, the statue falls, is made into chafe, and the wind blows it away. And so it will be for all kingdoms that set themselves up against God Almighty. Now, what we are seeing in our text is that A beast is rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's. Now, remember, Daniel is on this side of the cross. He's on this side of history. So he sees Babylon, the lion, first. He sees Medo-Persia, the bear, second. And then he sees Greece, the leopard, third. John is on this side of history. And so as he recounts it, he sees the leopard first, then the bear, then the lion as his description. And so we see these various visions of these, these nations being viewed from two different ends of history. Now, Daniel 7, 7 through 8 says this, After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast. This is, this is Rome, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke its pieces and stamped with what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. Does that sound familiar? Back to Revelation 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns. I considered the horns back in Daniel, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, 
before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. Now, Daniel 7, 23 through 25 goes on to say, Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall rise. So he tells us what these horns represent. Ten kings shall rise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. So there's ten kings, ten kingdoms, and there's going to be one that is going to subdue three of those kings. So you've got a ten-nation conglomeration, and out of that is going to come a ruler who is going to come into complete and ultimate power by subduing three of the other kings. Verse 25 of Daniel 7, he shall speak words against the Most High. Uh, Now, what does this say about the, the Antichrist that is to come? In verse 5, And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. He shall speak words against the Most High, shall blaspheme the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. Verse 7 of our text today says, Also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Back in Daniel 7:25, that this beast was able to wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. That's always God's word's way of saying three and a half years. Now, the Antichrist, because Satan is always trying to counterfeit. He's going to try to counterfeit the Trinity. He's going to have a counterfeit God, a counterfeit Christ, and a counterfeit Holy Spirit. Now, ultimately, he's going to be in power, the Antichrist. Uh, He'll be on the scene for the seven years of the Great Tribulation, but he's going to come into power ultimately after subduing the three, three and a half years in. And so that is going to leave him three and a half years as a ruler on this earth. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ's earthly ministry was roughly about three and a half years. Satan always tries to counterfeit what it is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has done and what God's program has done. Revelation 17, 8 through 13 gives us a little bit more information in, about this blasphemous beast. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. In other words, he was, he is not, and he is about to rise again. So as we'll see here in just a moment, that Satan is even going to try to counterfeit the resurrection. Now, some individuals believe that the individual that is referred to in Revelation 17, 8 here is Judas Iscariot, that he he was, he is not now, and that he will rise again, and that Satan will actually incarnate Judas just as he did on the night that uh, Judas betrayed Jesus. Now, whether or not that this is who the Antichrist is, he is some resurrected Judas, I, I, I don't know. That's what some scholars tend, tend to believe. I believe that regardless, we see that there is somebody who this text leads us to believe, as well as Revelation 13, who is killed and is raised again. Now, I don't know that Satan has the power to raise anybody from the dead. Some individuals believe that actually what is being talked about is the revived Roman Empire, which seems to have been dead, will be revived again, and that is what is being referred to in this passage of Scripture. But the beast that you saw, the beast from the sea, was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. 
and the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Now, Rome was built on seven hills. The, the old Roman Empire, Rome was built on seven, hill, seven hills. So I believe this is a good indication that this is talking about a revived Roman Empire. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is and the other has not yet come. So there have been six world ruling empires within the history of man. The Assyrian Empire the Egyptian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire. So as we see in Revelation 17.10, there are also seven kings. They're talking about seven kingdoms, five of whom have fallen. Those five have fallen. There is one that is. Well, as John is writing it, the only nation that was ruling the entire world was Rome. One that is. He says there, there's one that is to come. There has never been a nation that has ruled the entire world since the Roman Empire. Hitler tried it, but praise the Lord, he was thwarted. But there's coming a day where the Roman Empire will be revived and will be headed up by the Antichrist. It will be known as Mystery Babylon, and we'll talk more about that when we get to Revelation 17. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eight, but it belongs to the seventh, and it goes to destruction. In other words, he comes up in the ten-nation conglomeration of the revived Roman Empire, but then he subdues three, and he sets himself up as, as king and ruler over all. In fact, it says in verse 12, the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast, These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. So ultimately, this blasphemous beast reigns uh, for three and a half years. Now, who is he ultimately? Well, he, if you're taking notes, he's the devil's viceroy. In other words, he he is the the devil's uh, second in command. He is his representative here on this earth, completely embodying Satan and the satanic work of our enemy. 2 Thessalonians 2.9 says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. All power, false signs and wonders, and it is the activity or the person behind all of this is Satan. Look at verse 2 of our text today. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth, and to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. This is what he tried to do to Jesus in the wilderness, if you remember. If you'll just bow down to me, I'll give you all of the kingdoms of the world. You'll have all authority, you'll have all thrones. Just don't go to the cross. You can have a crown, and you can rule as judiciously as you want, as lovingly as you want. I don't care how you rule your kingdom. They could be filled with grace all you want. Just don't go to the cross. Take this crown without the cross, and that is the scheme of the enemy for even followers today, that there can be a crown had apart from the cross. There is no crown without the cross. You must die to self. You must pick up your cross. You must die to self. 
You must follow Christ daily, and one day you'll be given a crown. And you know what you'll do with it? You'll throw it at the feet of Jesus. The Queen of England died uh, a couple days ago, had no clue she was a Christian, had no clue whatsoever that, that she was a Christian, but I saw one quote of hers that said that she would very much like Jesus to return in her lifetime, and when asked why, she said so she could lay her crown at his feet. Well, she's truly a Christian, and a statement like that speaks of the Holy Spirit at work in somebody's life. Guess what? She's, gotten, she's got the opportunity to lay her crown down at the feet of Christ, and one day we will have that opportunity as well. But we see that all authority in the throne of Satan has been given over to this antichrist, to this false Christ who's going to come onto the world scene, and many individuals are going to think he's a deliverer. Some individuals, the the Jews will even in some regards think that he is the Messiah, that he is the one that has come. Now, whether or not the Antichrist is Jewish in ethnicity or not, we see that he rises up out of the sea. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea. That that speaks of the Gentile nations. That speaks of uh, of the, 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 the Gentile world. The land is always a picture of uh, and the stability of God's people, the nation of Israel. The seas are always the chaos and turmoil of the Gentile nations. And so he rises out of the sea. He rises out of the Gentile nations. So he's the devil's viceroy, but he, he also uh, seems to have and pulls off a deceitful victory. He has a deceitful victory. Notice in verse 3, it says, One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And down in verse 7, it says that he was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. It seems as if he has victory, but it's a deceitful victory. It's for those that don't have the Holy Spirit at work in their lives who lack discernment to be able to understand what it is that is transpiring before them. And it's going to seem as if he has all the answers. It's going to seem as if he is conquering all of his foes and that he is the victorious one. He is the one that everybody has been waiting on. He is the one that Henry Paul... Uh, Paul Henry Spock was, was asking to come, whether he be God or devil. Well, let me tell you, he's going to be devil. He's going to be devil until God returns. He gets three and a half years. And I pray that we all would understand, because some of us, we get so caught up in, who is the Antichrist? And I think that's the Antichrist. And this person has got to be the Antichrist. Remember, uh, Ronald Reagan was the Antichrist at, at one point in time, because his first name, his middle name, and his last name had six letters in it, and it was Ronald Reagan. <laughs> it's been every president you didn't agree with politically, you know, uh, forever. They're the Antichrist. It's the Pope. The Pope is the Antichrist. Maybe this person is the Antichrist. This person is the Antichrist. I'll go on, Rick. I believe it's Tom Brady. Like, I just believe it's, <laughs> it's Tom Brady. As a Jet fan, I just got to believe it's Tom Brady. We don't know. We don't necessarily know who the Antichrist is. And what are you going to do if you knew? Even if you could prove that's the Antichrist, what are you going to do? Somebody's going to try to kill him, and for all intents and purposes, it looks like he rises back from the dead. What are you going to do? Trust in Jesus? 
He may have his little three and a half years. But Jesus is going to return, and he's going to be thrown in the lake of fire along with his false prophet. We get so worried and fretful about what, what, Jesus, it's Jesus. Jesus returns. Jesus brings victory. Now, that doesn't mean we don't exercise the sermon. It just means that we realize that Jesus is in control. So we see that this Antichrist will pull off what seems to be uh, a victory, but it is a deceitful victory. Whether or not he actually uh, dies, as it says in verse 3, that he has a mortal wound, but his mortal wound was healed. Uh, Whether or not he actually dies and is resurrected in this counterfeit Resurrection of Jesus, uh, you know, I, I, really don't, I really don't know. Um, there, there are people that are very animate that he does die, and then Satan is able in some way to bring him back to life. There are some individuals that see that this is actually talking about the, the, the revived Roman Empire that looked like it was once dead for so long, and now, now that it is back. Or it's going to be an illusion, right? It's going to, to, to look like the, the individual ha- has been killed and, and comes back to, to, to life. That I don't necessarily know. I know that as a result of what transpires in whatever one of those scenarios, uh, individuals are going to worship the beast as a result. And that brings us to the second point, the Babylonian blind. Now, we'll talk more about this when we get to um, Revelation 17, what I mean by the Babylonian blind. But uh, really, all lost people are the Babylonian blind. When you think about Babylon, you go all the way back. Babylon is where the Tower of Babel was first built. And the Tower of Babel, the very heart of Babylonian blindness is that we can be God. We would make better gods than God, that we can be our own gods. You, you even hear that in churches today. You're a little G God. No, you're not. You're a rebel against God. And unless you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you, you remain a rebel against God. You're adopted into the forever family of God, and you become a child of God, but you, you are not a God. That's a Babylonian spirit that says we'll build big enough, high enough, and we'll overcome the troubles of sin in this world apart from the redemptive plan of God Almighty. Now, the revived Roman Empire, I believe, is going to be a conglomeration mainly made up of European nations just because of uh, the geography of the Roman Empire that existed many years ago uh, just for, for fun. Uh, go look at the EU parliamentary, uh, parliamentary building in Strasbourg, France. Let's look that. We'll look more uh, about that uh, in Revelation 17. Uh, and then start to ask yourself why uh, the top of it is left open the way it is and what the architects utilized as somewhat of their um, template to build it off of. Just, I won't ruin that. Just... The EU Parliamentary Building in Strasbourg, France. Look that up. But we see this Babylonian blindness, this idea that we don't need God. Uh, We can figure it out ourselves. Uh, And this is what we see transpiring all throughout the time of the book of Revelation through the, the Great Tribulation. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 4 says this, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, 
who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes a seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Ultimately, that is the spirit of Babylonianism. We don't need God. We can be our own God. In fact, we would make a better God than God. Is that not the lie of Satan in the Garden of Eden? Did God really say? Well, the reason why he said that is because he knows you'll be like God. I don't know about you, but I make a horrible God. You make a horrible God. But we look to individuals to be our gods for us. We look to our spouses. We look to our children. We look to uh, political figures. We look to religious leaders to to be God for us. No, no, no. You you don't need somebody to be a go-between For you and God Almighty, Jesus Christ has already done that. The veil has been torn. You have direct access to God through Christ. You make a horrible God. I make a horrible God. But the spirit of Babylonianism is the opposite to say, no, 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 no. You make a great God. You, who knows better for your life than you? You do you. That phrase sound familiar? You get what you need to get. You focus in on everything that you want. You don't want to be married anymore? Divorce. You don't want to adhere to God's commands and Scripture? Throw them out. You live your life however you want to live your life. And the world is replete with all kinds of destruction as a result of the Babylonianism in the hearts and minds of men. Romans 12.2 says this, or excuse me, uh, if you're taking notes, uh, we see in, in, in verse 3 of Revelation 13 that one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled, or they wondered, they were in awe. So there's this rebellious wonder that transpires as a result. There's this rebellious wonder, and in the hearts and minds of individuals that have set themselves up against God, there's this wonder at these other kingdoms and what it is that they have and do accomplish. Romans 12, 2 tells us, therefore, we need to have a spirit of discernment. If one of the things that is lacking in the church today, it is discernment to know whether or not what is being propagated as Christian or as godly aligns with what is actually presented to us as Christian and as godly in God's word. We'll let anybody stamp the name of Jesus on something, any kind of film, any kind of book, any kind of anything, as long as it appears Christian in nature, we'll just take it wholesale. And oftentimes what is embedded in that is a scheme of the enemy that distorts God's word just as was in the Garden of Eden. And we need to have a spirit of discernment to be able to filter that through God's word to know that's not what God's word says. That's not, that's not true. You may be using the name Jesus, but that's not the Jesus of Scripture. Jehovah's Witnesses believe in Jesus, but they don't believe in the Jesus of Scripture. Mormon theology believe in Jesus, but they don't believe in the Jesus of Scripture. Muslims believe that Jesus once walked the face of this earth. Muslims even believe that Jesus will come back. And Jesus is going to come back and he's going to break every cross and he's going to say, no, 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 you should have listened to Muhammad. Their eschatology believes in the return of Jesus. But they don't believe in Jesus of Scripture. 
We must have discernment in what's going to be lacking in the days of the Great Tribulation because there's going to be one world religion. Is people are going to lack, they're going to lack discernment. They're going to lack the ability to line up what they're being fed with God's word and know what is not true. That's why Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We'll have to come back. That's a whole message right there. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. If you don't have the Holy Spirit in you, you'll never be able to discern truth from, from, from falsehood. Ephesians 5, 6 through 14 says this, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when any Anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. In other words, what does discernment really look like? What, how do we grow in our discernment? Well, it, it, you got to sunbathe in the light of Christ. You got to get the little tinfoil thing that they put to reflect it back up on you. You you got to get out into the, the sun and the light of Christ, and you got to bathe in it. Stop being partners with the things of darkness. Stop having one foot in darkness and one foot in light, wondering, I can't tell the difference. Sometimes I get so confused. I'm not able to discern what is right and what is wrong, what is of God and what is of the world. Well, get out of the world and get into the light. Bathe in the light. And watch your spiritual discernment increase. Hebrews 5.14 says this, But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. This will be the thing that is lacking the most in the church leading up to the rapture, leading up to the great tribulation. So how do we grow in our discernment? Well, first you've got to understand there are spiritual absolutes. You have to know there are spiritual absolutes. That's why this idea that truth is relative is so dangerous because it hinders us from having true discernment. If everything is true, nothing is true. And if nothing is true, then who knows what? You need to pray. You need to speak to God. You want to grow in spiritual discernment? You need to pray and ask for wisdom. That's what the book of James tells us. You need to study his word. You need to get in God's word, and you need to study it, and you need to seek godly counsel. You need to surround yourself with individuals that are doing the same, that can speak truth into your life, and you can speak truth into their life. And what happens as a result of this wonder? Well, they have a rebellious worship. They start to worship the beast and therefore worship Satan. They start to worship him as God. We see this rebellious worship that has transpired throughout all of humanity, and we see that it will culminate in this one-world religion where individuals will ultimately start to worship the beast as God Almighty. Then they make a rebellious war against God's people. We see that in verse 7, that God 
allows them in this moment in his sovereignty for them to make war and to seemingly conquer the saints. But the truth of the matter is we know that he doesn't conquer them because death here on this life for a Christian just means the first breath in God's kingdom uh, that is to come. And so we see this blasphemous beast. We see the response to this blasphemous beast by the Babylonian blind. But praise the Lord, just as all throughout the book of Revelation, there's good news. Amen? There's good news for us today. There's good news for those that are in the great tribulation in the time that is to come. And we see that good news presented to us in Revelation 13, verse 8, in the book of the believers. Revelation Verse 8 of chapter 13 says, And all who dwell on earth will worship it, talking about the beast, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. This book of believers we see in Revelation 20, 11 through 15 is what individuals' eternities are based upon. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Well, I think that verse of Scripture is pretty important for us to make sure that our name is written in the book of life. So how do we get our name written in the book of life? That's the message of the New Testament. That's the the message of the gospel. That's the message of the entire Bible. The Old Testament is showing time and time again, you can't be good enough. I'll give you 10, and you break every one. I give you 10. Say, well, I never killed anybody. Well, God's Word says if you've ever had hatred or anger in your heart towards somebody else, it's the equivalent of murder. I've, I've never committed adultery. Well, if you've ever had a lustful thought for somebody other than your, your, your spouse, God's word attributes that inequality to adultery. You say, well, I've never lied. You just did. <laughs> so by your own admission, if we were to, to say, I've had those thoughts, I've said those things, I've had those feelings, then all of us are murderous, adulterer liars. And we're deserving of punishment and separation from God for all of eternity. But there's good news. Because there's a book with names that are written in it. And they're not written in pencil. They can't be erased. They're written in the precious blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and that ink don't fade. So how do you get your name written in the book of life? You trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Say, that's too easy. That's too simple. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. You mean to tell me that somebody who has never even had a speeding ticket 
if they refuse to place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, they're going to go to hell. But somebody who has killed people, if while in prison, maybe even on death row, were to truly repent of their sins and place their faith in Jesus Christ, they would go to heaven? Yes. That's the gospel. Well, I don't think that's fair. Look at the cross of Jesus Christ and answer what is fair. Because he died for your sins. You know what would be fair? Is if God punished all of us for our sin. That would be fair. But instead, out of his love, he sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for you and for me and for our sins that he knew not. For he who knew no sin became sin so that through faith in Christ, we could be made new creations in Christ Jesus. So this book that contains the names, this book of the Lamb, who have their names written into it, first it contains the names of the faithful. It contains the names of the faithful, those that have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. How do you know if your name is written in the book of life? Well, the first indicator is, have you called upon the name of the Lord? Have you repented of your sins and placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? contains the names of the faithful. Secondly, it contains the names of the forgiven. It's not that it contains the names of those that are not guilty. It just contains the names of those that were guilty, but they've been forgiven because they were faithful. Praise the Lord for the forgiveness of God. I think about all of the vile, depraved things that I have done in my life, that I'm deserving of death of. And by the sheer grace of God, he has taken them as far as from the east is to the west. As an old pastor used to say, he's thrown them into the sea of his forgetfulness and posted a sign that says, no fishing allowed. Forgiven. That which was in darkness has now been brought into light. That which was on the sinking sand of this world now has the firm foundation that is built on the cornerstone that is Christ Jesus himself. Thirdly, it contains the names of the fruitful. God's word is very clear that if you have placed your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, you will bear fruit. Some 30, some 60, some 100 times. But a good tree bears good fruit, and a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree can't bear bad fruit, and a bad tree can't bear good fruit. Say that three times fast. God's word specifically tells us that if you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that you will bear fruit. You will. You'll bear the fruit of the Spirit, patience and kindness, love gentleness, self-control. You'll produce the, the, the fruit that is in line with repentance to where you have turned from the things of the world and you have turned to the things of Christ. Now, that doesn't mean you do it perfectly, but it does mean that you will see fruit being bore out in your life. God's word promises us that. Those individuals who have their names written in the book of life, they are the faithful, the forgiven, and the fruitful. Is your name written in that book? And if you were to say yes, on what basis? And as Alistair begs, 
has said, if you begin that answer in the first person, well, well, well I, I, I have. I've done this. I, I did this. I said this. I was a good. No, 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 no. You've already, you've already failed. But if you say, because Jesus, because of Jesus and the work on the cross, because of the blood that he shed on the cross, that's why my name is written in that book. Then my brother and my sister, one day, we will enter into his victorious kingdom. And we will stand before Christ Jesus And there won't be books open. That's for the unbelieving. There will be a book open. Your name will be written in there. For you belong to God Almighty. Would you bow your heads and your hearts with me?